Sir Roger Moore, the actor, is dead. A number of his shows, particularly the TV series, uh, stick in my mind because of the character, the passion and the feeling demonstrated by the cars. Now, Sean Connery was a James Bond. He had an Aston because it was cool, sophisticated and elegant. Piers Brosnan had some BMWs because he was commercially contracted to, pure product placement. But Roger Moore had a series of expensive to wacky cars that drew attention away from his bad acting. Let's talk about that and other quirky news stories. On the line is Errol Smith. Errol, am I right about Roger Moore? Absolutely. Well, he he was the one that took the James Bond franchise into sort of silly territory, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, the, sort of the, the the penultimate example of that was Moonraker, where they basically tried to make a James Bond meets Star Wars. Oh, okay. I, I didn't see them. It was all set in space with, uh, you know, space shuttles and, and there was a battle inside a space station with, with Jaws. Oh, okay. So it was all very, all very silly. Did put me off completely a little later, two ones after Moonraker, and I only know these things because I've got a list in front of me, uh, was Octopussy. I just thought that was just such a crass. That's the sort of title that would make Trump blush. Yes. I don't know if that's possible. No, maybe not that far. <laughs> but going back, the television series, The Saint, probably a little before your time, the, where he had the Volvo P1800 with the number plates ST1. I just thought that was wonderful. Did you ever see it? Uh, no, David, it's a bit, a bit before my time, I think. Okay, that's the little Volvo sports car. And he had that rather than an E-Type Jaguar. An E-Type Jaguar would have been perfect British. You know, it was on the market. Uh, They asked Jaguar for a free one. And Jaguar said, we're selling everything we can. Why would we need to give you a free one? But wouldn't it have given a lasting impression forever if they had have picked that? It would have. I think they, they missed the whole product placement thing. Which which actually really started with uh, with James Bond because the uh, the DB five was kind of you yes. know not a big deal uh, and, until it became the James Bond car and of course you could say the same thing about the uh, the Lotus Esprit S one which you um, yes uh, of course becomes a submarine where isn't that getting silly though see I mean the very first James Bond one from uh, uh, which, of course, was Sean Connery, which was Live and Let Die. I, no, no, sorry, that's Roger Moore. I can't remember which one was. Which one yeah, was well, Do- Do- Dr. Do- no. Do- Dr. No? Dr. No was the, the first film, which, right. which had the DB5 in it. No, no, it's it actually had the Sunbeam in it. And then the next one, from Russia With Love, had a Bentley Mark IV, and then the Aston came in in the third one, which was Goldfinger and then Thunderball. But, of course, as you're quite right, Errol, hasn't it made the name Aston Martin? Yeah, well, the, the, the first thing you think of when you hear the name Aston Martin is, is James Bond. He also, or Sean Connery, also got into a Toyota 2000 GT, which I thought was a lovely-looking little car, but clearly it didn't do him any good, I'm afraid. The Spy Who Loved Me is the one that's... Um there's probably most most famous for for Roger Moore and the Lotus. That's that's the uh, the one where it becomes a submarine. That's the Lotus Esprit S one. Yes. And um, a little bit later, you had a Lotus Esprit Turbo in for your eyes only. But that that one just got blown up by its own self destruct system. 
Yes. Well, the other thing is, for your eyes only, also, of course, had far more significantly the Citroen 2CV. Of course. Yes, yes, that, that classic car chase scene. And it <laughs> rolls over, I think, on its side. It also had yeah. a little um, a bajaj, um sort of like a rickshaw, motorised rickshaw sort of thing, only with an enclosed body. That was part of it as well. Oh, no, that was in Octopussy, I think. Yeah, Octopussy. Again, I'm not an expert on this. I'm tending to read research rather than necessarily... Mm. At least with... Um... With most of those films, the Roger Moore films, they stuck with the British cars. Whereas we went to, uh, when you had Pierce Brosnan, we had the uh, BMWs, which seems a little implausible to me for a British spy agency. Don't talk about the war, David. (laughs) As I say, that was just pure product placement, wasn't it? Roger Moore has been a a, a source of fun, I guess. He was a much more more light-hearted... James Bond than than uh, Connery was. Do you remember the television program The Persuaders? I think that one's before my time too, David. Right. This is where Roger Moore and um, oh, what's his name? Oh, it'll come to me. The American little bloke, uh, Roger. They were both crims, and they uh, were caught out having a big fight. They weren't crims. They were they were man about town, right? And so they had a big fight, and the judge said, you can either do good or go to jail. And so they right. bandied together to catch the baddies. Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis, yeah. Tony Curtis. Yeah, Tony, Tony Curtis and Roger Moore were the persuaders in the, uh, in the 70s. Roger had a Aston Martin DBS, which, to my mind, had gone the way of Mustangs. Do you remember the first Mustang, a lithe pony, and then became a fat pig? I think the first Mm. Aston Martin, well, certainly the DB5, became then this rather ugly, square, bulldogish sort of sports car with a big square nose on it. And, of course, Tony Curtis had the absolutely beautiful... Ferrari Dino 246 GT, a lovely car, one one of the all-time prettiest cars, I, I believe, that's around. And uh, to some degree, it, it, it oozed style, whereas Roger Moore, with his Aston Martin, oozed just a bit of wealth, I suppose. Yes, bulk, but when they were big and bulky. So, as I say, I think uh, what really happened with Roger Moore was that uh, he had to have wacky cars to try and draw attention to the movie because, really, uh, the the plots and the acting and the smarminess of it all just uh, never made it worthwhile. Yeah, so he, he had a long run, a long run though, David, and, uh, he, and he was... Um uh, well into his fifties when he did the old, the, the last in the uh, in in eighty five. So uh, he hung in there as one of the older bonds. But he wasn't a be- he, he wasn't bearish, David, was he? So this is the story of a Virginia homeowner who got a big surprise when they woke up to the fact that their car was honking away. The horn was going. They went outside and found a two hundred pound bear cub locked in the vehicle. And it got inside at about 5 a.m. in the morning looking for food. Now, I've got to say, if you have a bear cub in your car and it's honking the horn, uh, that's road rage you'd be prepared to let go, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yes, I think so. (laughs) I don't mind it using the horn and blowing the horn. He can do that as long as he also uses the blinkers. 
Yes, well, it's, it's, it's very important, David. You have to indicate. I was talking to a mate of mine who said that he had a, a friend, or more particularly an acquaintance, who had been uh, teaching people advanced driving for 20 years or something. And he, of course, was highly opinionated and everything was all about how you have to be, you know, be able to control a skid if you're going to be safe on the road. My friend travelled in the car with him on quite a number of occasions. He never once used the blinkers, the indicators. So all the talk about road safety, one wonders what that needs. Anyway, so you've got a bear in a car. Are we going to see cars that will do everything for all your needs and so will they recognise that there's a bear inside? How, how do you think that they might cope for that? This sounds like a play school intro, David. There's, there's a bear in there. <laughs> come inside. <laughs> yes, come inside. But uh, I think, David, really what this story boils down to is that you shouldn't leave food in your car. Yeah. This yeah. is, uh, I think this is, this is fundamentally what it's all about because uh, if there wasn't something interesting smelling, then he wouldn't have made his way into the car in the first place. I also think that this is, this is an excellent test of the resilience of the internal trim of a vehicle. Mm. Do you want to see how tough, how, how tough it is? You just chuck a bear in there and uh, see what happens. And, and if you think about it, a, a 200-pound bear cub is a little bit you know, like, a, like a large dog would, would be a similar kind of thing in a car 90 kilograms yes 90 yes or, hmm. yes yeah maybe a doberman across yeah, the front seat pretty big dog yes. yes well look modern cars now will project the image of the name or in a mustang the horse down onto the road when you open the door so really to try and get the bear out perhaps a hologram or or just a picture like that of a picnic basket on the outside might be the way to get him out of the car. And so cars of the future might have images that you can project outside the car in order to achieve something that you might not normally be able to do. Yes, yes. It could, it could just be a pot of honey is all that you need and he'll be on mm. his way. <laughs> or, or a picture of a salmon jumping on, the, you know, on yes. the far side of the windscreen for your headlights. Your <laughs> headlights could project salmon jumping you you wonder about what you do to the seats if they were leather would that would that worry him i guess not if they were more sheepskin that might send him wild him or her mm. yes he might start uh, digging into the, the upholstery in the car do you know the panda has a, a common ancestor with the bear uh, I, that doesn't surprise me at all well if you had seat covers that were sort of in that lamb's wool but dyed black spots on it and what have you if a panda was in there you wouldn't be able to recognize it no uh, now, talking about recognising, of course, is also road signs. Errol, you have a story on that? Well, David, it seems that road signs in Australia are still a very low-tech item with lots of room for human error. Uh, they are yet to involve spell-checking, for example, as demonstrated in South Australia. A road sign on a major arterial route misspelled Western as Wetern. The department, which you can't really spell either, it's the DPTI, uh, or the Department of Planning and Transport and Infrastructure, fixed the error in two hours, according to a spokesman. But uh, I was I was wondering if, if Wetton was uh, perhaps an indication of the road conditions ahead, because oh, it had just yes. been raining. <laughs> they fixed it in two hours. If it had been a pothole, it would have been there for eternity, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, two months at least. 
There's a whole road safety issue here. One is that if you're looking at signs and trying to proofread them, you're not looking at the road in front of you. The other is that if you see a sign with such a, an error on it, even if it's a glaring error, then you might stop in a dangerous place to take a photo. But the thing, at least, uh, uh, even though it's spelt wrong, I've got to say the meaning is clear. There's a whole range of signs that I don't think have clear meaning at all. Falling rocks. What are you meant to do with that? Mm. Catch them? Beware of falling rocks. So does that mean don't drive down the road? Yeah, because a rock might come down, maybe. Yeah, so I, I don't know what you're supposed to do about that. There is, of course, signs that take on different meanings. I did a conference paper one time on metaphors in transport, and uh, someone asked me about signposting, particularly the hump at 25 kilometres an hour sign. My only comment was that, yes, that can be open to a misinterpretation, as could the give way when merging sign. Now, we were also talking about speed signs. You see a a speed sign that is 25, 35 or whatever kilometres per hour. People say, ah, but the modern car can now go faster. There are two reasons why that's not relevant. Certainly the modern car can corner faster, but those speed signs were at some times put up because of poor sight distance. So if yes. you're going around a corner too quickly, you haven't time to stop if some, if there's a rock in the middle of the road, for example. Yes, yes, of course. The other one is comfort, that even if you are Jack Brabham who can go around the corner, the passenger might not be at all comfortable unless you're doing what the signposting is. If you have any doubt about that, look at a passengers in four-wheel drives as you go over the rough stuff. The driver's in his element, the passenger is being tossed around like a rag doll. Yes, I think a lot of drivers forget that they're hanging onto a steering wheel and nobody else in the car is. And they can see where it's going to go uh, crazy. Yes. Now, Errol, last week we did a news story where we talked about private money being used to build infrastructure, new roads, new railway lines. And we spoke of a concern that if you get the private industry, whose pretty well sole motive is financial then that's government's role is not just to get the money. It is also, of course, to serve the broader community. And if you just rely on private industry that will maximise profits, you may end up building things or even charging tolls, which really give benefit to only those who can afford it. And there's a story out of LAX, Los Angeles Airport, where they now have a specialist area, a private terminal for the mega-rich. It just gives them a great deal of priority and comfort in getting onto the planes. Uh, a, a bad principle, Errol? Oh, absolutely. This is uh, sort of, you know, we talk about the, the gap between the rich and the poor, and this is just, just taking it to a whole new level. Uh, apparently, you need, a, you need to know the secret handshake to get in. <laughs> according to a recent meme it's uh, when you put your hand out to uh, take someone else's hand she knocks it back ah yes yes of course (laughs) if you saw the president uh, walking off an airplane and what his wife did uh, now I I have my great concerns. There's a a pile of other reasons for it as well that if you set up a contract for a private firm to build a road 
or to build a railway line or other things, that they often demand things in that contract which are counter to the general well-being. One of them, a major freeway in Sydney, the contract, which was kept private until someone found out, that the condition that the private industry asked for was that no public transport would be built in competition. Mm. Yes, yes, we want a monopoly. Thank you. Here's, here's, your, here's your kickback. Well, the other thing in terms of airports is, of course, uh, there are fundamentalists who demand that we build railway lines to them when, in fact, bus services to, for example, Tullamarine is doing better as a percentage of total flying trips in capturing the, those trips on public transport than the railway system is in Sydney. It's not quite that simple. I'm not suggesting that. But everyone says you've got to have a railway system to look good, well, you've got to have the most expensive system in the world in order to appease people who can afford to fly. Fortunately, we don't have one of these, you know, specialist terminals in uh, in Australia just yet. But anything is possible. Who knows what they'll do at this new airport in the in, on the other side of Sydney? Oh well, I've flown out of the private one at Sydney, but of course that's just for small planes and that, and mm. specialist charter planes. But they do have their own parking. They claim uh, this uh, LAX one. They they claim it, that it's going to cost taxpayers nothing and will generate thirty four million dollars for the airport. It's all very you know one percenter. This one you get you get you get chauffeured from from the terminal to your plane in a you know BMW seven series. And you get to uh, have some cabernet and you know free showers and all this kind of uh, high-end stuff. The question is, it won't cost people unless it delays the average person more. Mm. Unless by giving priority, it causes delay. But that's a cost that people at the airport uh, can't easily measure, so they assume it doesn't exist. Yes, yes, and and they had they even had a little um, a little iPad set up with a video of the regular terminal, so you could see just how badly everybody else has it. <laughs> uh, look, actually, I, I you know one can be very pretentious about this and poo poo it, but I've got to say when I flew into Bangkok Airport and uh, we had the business class tickets and that gave us a priority queue to get through customs and I've got to say I felt pretty darn good. I didn't feel superior, I just felt I guess relieved. All right Errol, always good to talk to you thank you very much for your time and we'll see you next week. No worries David. And that was Errol Smith and we were talking some unusual stories and some moral stories to do with transport and motoring.